Hello everyone and welcome to Seminary for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters. This is episode 5 in which I talk with Rev. Lauren R.E. Larkin about dialectical theology and embodiment. Lauren R.E. Larkin is a PhD candidate at the University of Aberdeen. Her academic work engages with the writing of Friedrich Gogarten, Dialectical Theology, Personhood and Embodiment, and Political Ethics. She is a host of Sancta Colloquia. Her blog is laurenrelarkin.com, which I will link for you in the show notes. Now, if you are anything like past me, you are already asking yourself, what the heck is dialectical theology? And what is embodiment? And why would they be together in the same conversation? Well, hopefully that's what this episode is for, to begin to answer those questions for you. But let me leave you with a hint in the form of another question. What happens when you have a radical encounter with God and you are brought outside of yourself? Keep listening. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) It's uh, really an honor to have you take a small chunk out of your day to meet with me. We had a couple hiccups because of stuff and things that are happening. (laughs) Um, So I'm just really, really happy we were able to connect. Um, So... Uh, We're going to be talking about dialectical theology, which might not be a familiar term to a lot of people. Uh, My exposure to it is very limited, mostly because I first heard about it through following you on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) And then as a result of following you on Twitter, following other people on Twitter, like uh, Dr. McMacken, Dr. Congdon, um, and then watching a couple of their YouTubes. And then reading Evangelical Theology by Karl Barth, and then Our God Loves Justice by um, Travis McMacken. So my exposure is very limited. So maybe you can fill me in on some of the gaps. What is dialectical theology? Um, well, you know, I... I'm just going to go ahead and uh, I'm actually waiting for a document to pull up um, as you were talking. Um, one, I was I was opening up a document because I have uh, a, a Mac and um, and so many desktops and I am flipping um, rapidly between all the different desktops. However, I'm going to go ahead and steal what I think to be the absolute best definition of um, dialectical theology. And this comes from Dr. Travis McMacken, and it's from a podcast, I wanna say, 
actually I'm blanking on which podcast, but I will get you the reference so that you can add it in the show notes or whatever it is, um, how you kind of post these things. So per cool. Dr. McMacken, um, dialectical theology is an attempt to do theology based on that existential encounter with God that put pulls you out of yourself and reorients you in the world in a decisive way. So it's a very personal encounter with God in the event of faith. And this encounter can happen, doesn't have to strictly happen in the four walls of the church, though it can. And the church, I think, is uniquely set up to create a space for such an encounter with God in the event of faith. But the end result is that you have been brought through an, a, an encounter with God, which renders you dead. But because it's God and God's mercy is new every morning, you are brought back into life. And in this new life, you are positioned and postured in a way in the world that is oriented towards and defined by the love of neighbor. Um, and so that's sort of how I look at it. And he does just offer the best definition. And his work is notoriously very accessible. Um, I've actually Agreed. given. <laughs> We've talked about this. We've yes. talked about this. So um, I have actually given, I had a couple, I had an extra copy and I actually gave uh, a copy of his Our God Loves Justice to a student because his writing is um, accessible that even 17 and 18 year olds can engage with it. Um, so he's a true teacher at heart. Um, anyway, that is, so I use his definition because I do find it to be the best. It works really well with also my academic work in relationship to dialectical theology. So there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My question when it comes, because I've seen that definition before, like more than once and I've like heard about it. Um, but my question when reading that definition is how do you know you've had an encounter with God? Like, cause you could say you had like a really, I'm looking for the right word, but like encounter where you're brought outside of yourself, but like you don't it, like say you're not a Christian, but you have like a counter and you don't call yourself a Christian. So you don't really think about God that much, but you have an encounter like that. How do you know it's God? It's an undoing and a redoing. Um, that's, it's like an unbuilding and a rebuilding, um, a deconstruction and a reconstruction. Um, when, okay. I, I'm hesitant to categorically define what an encounter with God looks like, right? Um, that limits the potentiality for what I would like to call a mundane encounter with God, which is not particularly radical, but mundaneness is actually now paradoxically beautiful in the in the um, advent of God's grace in the world through Jesus Christ and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's... I want to allow room for um, the day-to-day -to, -day to factor beautifully and significantly. It doesn't have to be on the, on the road to Damascus type experience. For me, it was. For me, it is. But I'm a super intense person. Okay. <laughs> so um, as I teach my eighth graders, you know, Paul was knocked off his donkey and onto his donkey when God yeah. encountered him. <laughs> And they take a moment, and then they go, oh, Reverend Larkin. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you're tracking. Awesome. But for me, um, one of the most significant encounters that I had um, 
was right before I actually became Christian. And I was at the end of my rope. Um, this is sort of like kind of categorical Lutheran, confessional Lutheran language. Um, I didn't have... I didn't see any way forward, and um, I kind of fell on my knees in my apartment, just like calling out to God, like, if it's you and you're real and Jesus is did come, then you're my only option because otherwise I'm done for. If it's up to me, I'm done for. The next morning, after falling asleep in that sort of very emotional state, the next morning I woke up, I felt completely different. Um, it wasn't a death unto death. It was a death unto new life. I felt my um, intellect and my mind sort of drop its chains. And then this is when I started to proceed on a whole different path. Again, the the response in the world is different, right? It's not that I just woke up the next morning, went to work, and everything proceeded as usual. Mm-hmm. Even those those things can happen. For me, it was the the way that I saw the world was radically different. I couldn't maintain my profession on Wall Street. It didn't resonate with the spirit living inside me. Okay, I had to do something different. I had to pursue pursue something different. I almost kind of want to equate it to um, John Calvin's definition of the spiritual lenses to see things that we didn't necessarily see before, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's sort of that. It's like, um, how else would I define it? It's having an encounter that ends up with you being able to see color, all right? So imagine the world is sort of in gray tones and then you have this encounter and you step outside and the world has a vibrant color and now you are gonna operate differently in a world where there's green and red and yellow and turquoise and you know pool color, um, <laughs> uh, chartreuse and magenta, you're going to act differently in that world than you would if it was just all grayscale. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a personal, it's a personal thing. You encounter God in the event of faith and you are altered and radically brought into a new existence where you are postured rightly in the world. There should be, there should be probably some overlap in that posturing care and concern for others and neighbor. Um, but it's that radical sort of, um, oh my goodness, I've been living in this world in a way that has been to satisfy my own desires. And now I am going to go ahead and leave wall street. It's not about my paycheck. It's not about trying to get six figures. It's not about this. I need to. So just because my language switched and the way that I saw the world switched and my engagement with the world switched, I have to credit that to God because how did I come to those conclusions on my own? I don't know if that necessarily kind of helps. Uh, that 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 helps me a little bit, and I think from my very limited knowledge, um, you can kind of tie it into um, like the 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 subjectivity versus objectivity. Uh, so like before it was like you were an it, but like now your relationship has changed. It's more intimate. It's like an I thou relationship. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, there's a, it takes a lot for, um, the whole idea of faith is one that is, um, Remarkable. Uh, we like the idea that we can choose faith. 
And I reject that idea because if we choose faith, then it's a common sense sort of rational thing. And I don't suffer some sort of um, death in the confession that I behold God, right? Um, yeah. And so when when we make the confession of faith, there is a part of us that uh, moves kind of, we dislodge ourselves from the throne where we're reigning with our supposed rationality and our supposed reason. And we say, this is this throne isn't for me, it's for God, right? And so um, in that, which looks like a death, a permanent death is actually the means through which we get life. So you have that dialectic, right? That death into new life, which is right. core for dialectical theology. That's sort of the heart of the matter is death into new life. And so you have the paradox of what looks like it's going to be on no uncertain terms, a sure death, I'm dead as a doornail, um, ends up being the means by which we obtain life. So by confessing I am not in control, I actually end up maintaining and getting control. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah. kind of, so, so kind of, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And so in, in regards to our relationships with the world, we move from a me, it, or subject, it, um, to, uh, and even ourselves, our, our, we, our, our, dis, our bodies are kind of its in this sort of um, pre-death encounter, right? Um, or this pre-death experience. Um, and in the encounter, we move further into ourselves, realizing we are subject and object, and thus that which we encounter in the world and other human beings and the world itself are also subjects and objects. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what was I trying to say earlier? So, yeah. so when I was listening to you, I was also thinking about how a tenet that I've seen in core theology is that you cannot objectify God. Yes. So that yes. kind of ties you're saying. Yes, the non-objectifiability of God, which um, removes us out of um, the sort of uh, hyper-emphasized age of reason, right? Yes. The top-down mentality of evaluation and judgment. I am, you know, um, uh, I want to be cautious here because we all vilify Rene Descartes, but I think therefore I am <laughs> centers humanity in the center and says centers humanity in the center. You can tell I'm tired. <laughs> okay. It's it's humanity. Yeah. It's, humanity now is very centered. It's in the center of the center. <laughs> you can't get any more centered. Um, okay. So in, in, from this position, we, um, humanity is given the privilege of looking down. Now, it's going to be a specific humanity, too. If we look at the where this concept is built from and grows out of, it's a European sort of white-centered um, understanding. And so this actually becomes sort of the um, force behind what uh, your Christian Europe is going to do as soon as it gets in its boats and it starts going across seas, right? 
The I, we are determining what other people are. I am determining what this thing is. And it's a form of domination. Um, when we, we, and we even do it with, um, God. Okay. In this realm, we even, I'm going to determine what God is. God is white. Jesus is white. Mary is white. Right. And so (laughs) there's all these claims that are made and it's sort of like a top down valuation with what happens in um, the non-objectifiability of God, God is in control of God's own self-disclosure, is again, another encounter with God where you are sort of, you know, um, thrown off your donkey and onto your donkey to come to a realization of God that you wouldn't necessarily have come to on your own valuation top down. So it's bottom up. God tells you who God is. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we actually do have a good, um, a good, we have good characteristics embodied, right? So we have mercy, we have forgiveness, we have love, we have going to the fringe, we have healing of relationships, we have healing of people on the margins. Um, And so we see these things as core characteristics of God, but God is still free to disclose God's self which always renders the dialectical theologian in the position of never sort of pinning God into a corner. Because once we do that, we've essentially origami God into a crane and stuck that crane in our back pocket or in our wallet as a keepsake. Um, Yeah. Is that the type of God that you... Right. (laughs) The, The origami crane isn't necessarily going to bring you into an encounter with itself and cause you to die and be remade as a new creation. Well, it might be. I don't want to I don't, I don't want to downplay that. That could be your encounter with God, but in general, a god that is small and is easily objectified is um no god that's going to be able to engage you in a way that's a dismantling and a re- rebuilding, um undoing and a redoing. Yeah. I think that we could probably have an entire two-part episode on just like this one question alone that we keep (laughs) (laughs) but like um I want to transition because you a little bit because you were uh, you didn't always call yourself a dialectical theologian right Right. so so how how did you how did you then become one I uh accidentally replied to a tweet (laughs) (laughs) three years later oops (laughs) wow yeah yeah be careful be careful (laughs) what tweets you reply to because they might change your life Um, I actually had never heard of such a uh, such a concept I had studied some BART in um, seminary and I spent most of my time in my second master's degree studying Eberhard Jungel, um, but he's sort of right after that dialectical theological movement in the early 20th century of um, Protestant German history. Um, and so that there's like two waves, so just a little bit of history. You've got um, sort of the first wave of dialectical theology, which is kind of on the map. It's called dialectical theology. It's got some big names associated with it. For instance, Karl Barth, 
Rudolf Bultmann, um, Emil Brunner, I believe, is also connected to it. Um, you've got, and Friedrich Gogarten. And pr primarily the top three in that group are Gogarten, Bart, and Bultmann. All right. Now, they're like the old guard. And then there's the second wave of theologians where you can see dialectical theology operating in their work. Eberhard Jungel um, and Helmut Goldwitzer would be examples of that. But even when I was studying um, Eberhard Jungel, I didn't necessarily get exposed to dialectical theology, or at least I wasn't looking for it, right? I didn't right. know to look for it. I had to have my own encounter with dialectical theology to realize I needed dialectical theology in my... Um, theological breakfast cereal. All right. So um, with, I came into contact, I was in the throes of um, reading a lot of Luther. I was kind of stuck intellectually. I wasn't happy where I was in terms of my school of thought, which was sort of a radical law then gospel approach to things. Um, I was starting to, I really like talking about ethics and talking about the role of the law in the life of the believer. And there was just no room for me to do that. And I felt like that was a huge mistake. Um, and I felt that if I am a truly free Christian, it's not that I no longer have any law. It's that, that I am free to acknowledge the law for what it is and to have dominion. The law was made for me. I wasn't made for the law. And so that conversation should have been happening, but it wasn't. So in the doldrums of intellectual stagnation, I saw a tweet from someone who um, had written a blog post on Karl Barth and I think some of his fragments um, where we get into worship being the right ethical posture of the Christian. There's something really interesting. So I just clicked on it. I was bored one night, stuck in like snowy in like Colorado. And I clicked on it and I read it. And then I started dialoguing with the author. And then someone else jumped in and started talking to me about the relationship between Bart and Luther. And that someone was Travis McMacken. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> Well, the person who wrote the blog post had written rights for him. So it was a, it made sense because it was all surrounded. It was all around his. And so he and I started um, talking back and forth and I was still sort of stuck in this law then gospel motif. And um, he spent a lot of time <laughs> patiently letting me sort of like ask just a million questions. And within a few months, I believe I was pretty, sold on the idea. Um, and then that radically altered my doctoral work. So I left, I wound up, um, I call it breaking up with, um, my original doctoral advisor over at the university of Zurich and proceeded to, um, try to find work, uh, where I could focus on the, um, writings of Friedrich Gogarten because he's one of the missing voices of dialectical theology. Currently speaking, no one knows who he is except for, I don't know, like a very small niche of theology Twitter. <laughs> yes. <a> very small <laughs> niche. Anyone who follows me and, um, uh, but anyway, so, um, Dr. McMacken actually was instrumental in sort of pointing me in a direction where there was a great academic need. Um, so that's why I say, be careful when you reply to a tweet randomly when you're bored, your life might change. <laughs> I better watch out for that. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. 
Um, but anyway, there was it, 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 um, dialectical theology for me, the reason why it spoke so deeply is that, um, uh, it added stops in where I needed to see stops with, um, Luther's distinction between law and gospel. Um, I always felt that Luther had a really good understanding of when the preacher needed to preach law as if you could preach law, but where, where law need to be brought and where, where, um, gospel, where comfort needed to be, you know, that, that saying that we all know, um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Luther really had a good grasp on that. And where I was theologically speaking, I, it was very forced into a paradigm of law, then gospel. You never could exhort someone. You never could find a time to kind of drop the heavy. You always had to be a voice of comfort. Now, what do you do when you're preaching to a congregation that is very comfortable? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great so, question. Um, and so it just, it was starting to be more of a, um, lure further into deep sleep sort of mythology. And so now we get into the demythology, which is also another aspect of dialectical theology. I won't speak about demythology too much because there is an expert <laughs> and his name is David Congdon. Yes. Take care of it, and his he's he's brilliant, and so he does a really good job explaining it and defining it. I do implement the term and the activity, um, but when it comes to defining it, I'll let the uh, um, the Boltmanian go ahead and do that. Um, and uh, so anyway, so it just it put stops in. It forced me to reckon with my neighbor. It forced me into a position where um, this is dialectical theology allowed me to say, here I need to enter in under the law with this person. Here I need to break the law. It it offers an opportunity for the person to um, be impacted by good pro gospel proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified in a way that allows me to be in the world as I need to be in the world in that moment. And this is where we get into the idea of embodiment. Now, this is not from what I know from learning a lot from Dr. McMacken and learning some from Dr. Condon as well. Um, embodiment is an aspect, but it's not emphasized from them, at least not from what I hear. In one of their longer videos, the two of them, embodiment is mentioned, but it's almost like in passing because I was just looking up my notes from this yeah. video. But for me, it's a big thing. Okay. Now, the reason why I think so is that um, I think it's because I am a person from a group that is partially marginalized in that I am a woman. Granted, I am a white cishet woman, and so I have a lot of privilege, but I've always had to consider myself according to my body. I don't think, and I don't, I don't want to sound unfair, but when you're a white cishet man, you don't have to consider your body. You just operate in the world. So for me, dialectical theology is such an embodied approach to doing theology in the world that it is very existential, it's very embodied, okay? And so it impacts me on a personal level, and I like that. Um, and this is part of the core of my work that I'm doing. 
Um, the, the, um, at the end of Our God Loves Justice, Dr. McMacken sort of really presses in on this idea of the church being a little bit dangerous. I take that concept and I pull it to the Christian. The Christian should be in the world and a little bit dangerous. Um, and I build from what he's done onto a, um, a personal encounter. What's the question I'm asking is what is happening in that event of encounter with God in faith to the person? Um, and how is it that dialectical theology provides a good response to weaponized gospel, weaponized Lutheranism? Um, and how is it that I can be politically ethical and a political animal in the world? Me, you know, as a person. Um, and so I feel that the embodied aspect of dialectical theology is really important and it goes missed because the majority of people engaged with the construction of dialectical theology, at least from the historical perspective. So if you look at that initial school, um, all three of those guys, I have a picture of them on uh, not well, that's Thurnison, but anyway, they're all white cishet males. Yeah. And they, they cultivated an idea that was so significantly bigger than they were. I don't think they could handle it. And Gulvitzer gets close. This is why I really like the work of Gulvitzer because he has an understanding of embodiedness in his work. Um, he is tapping into something that's really key. And I think that he's very instrumental in causing me to really think about this embodiedness. So I find that my voice is important, not just because I'm bringing Friedrich Gogarten back, um, but because I'm a woman doing it. And I'm pressing into that because I have a different perspective on things than necessarily Dr. McMagan or Dr. Congdon. Um, it's going to be an addition of my experience in the world is radically impacted by the fact that I'm not a male. Um, now we can keep going. You know, this this implies that dialectical theology is, um, if it's embodied, that means it's good for all people of oppressed groups. And so it's going to argue that my existence on this planet is valuable in its bodied form and shouldn't be, shouldn't have the gospel or church dogmas pull the person out of the body. Um, and this is what I like about the decentralization of an afterlife in dialectical theology. Now, I want to be careful. I do have hope of a bodily resurrection. I'm an embodied person. I like the idea of an incarnate God and an embodied afterlife. Yes. Okay. All in or all out. I'm like, it's nothing or it's embodied. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. my, I, 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 there's no middle ground where I'm hanging out with a harp and some wings and a white robe somewhere sitting on a cloud. Um, my, I think I scare some students because I'm like, it's either full or it's nothing. And they're like, I can't handle that. I'm like, that's okay. It took me a while too. Um, but I do think dialectical theology um, allows us to exist in the I don't know of what it's going to be. Um, and so we can say all or nothing. Um, but it's, uh, I kind of forgot where I was going with that. But in general, this um, embodied existence, I don't have to wait for some sort of 
weird conception of an afterlife where everything will be better. I can actually fight for that now. Activism becomes a thing again because my body matters. Your body matters. People of color matter. LGBTQ plus matter. Their bodies matter. And so that's an essential aspect that I think dialectical theology really opens up um, in a way that I haven't seen many um, branches of or different variations of Luther's theology get um, are able to do. Um, I feel that if you stand on Luther and you shoot a arrow true to the target, this is where you land. Um, I like that you brought, I'm sorry if I interrupted a uh, train of a uh, train of thought, uh, but I like that you brought up embodiment because um, I don't know why, but that didn't really dawn on me very much until I started reading. Well, first I read um, Elizabeth Johnson, She Who Is, about uh, feminist uh, intro, er, intro to feminology and thinking about God. Um, and then I read Our God Loves Justice, and I was as I was reading it, it kind of dawned on me, you know, a Christian discipleship um, that doesn't include a holistic vision of like of what what you do with yourself in all aspects of your life, and that includes like what you do with your money how you care for other people that includes like your, that includes your whole self. Um, and it was at that point on that I started thinking about Christian discipleship as embodied, like a lived out experience. Um, you, you can't just pick and choose like how you get to live as a, as a Christian, you either do or you don't. And if you're not, then you, then you examine yourself and you're working on it. Right, right. And that's it. So, and it also prevents you from, so there's an issue with a lot of white liberal feminism, right? Yes, yep. <laughs> and that is that it oftentimes will not take into consideration um, black, indigenous, and people of color. Right. Yep. Um, also, too, it'll drop the ball in regards to addressing um, LGBTQ community. Dialogical theology in its embodied state, in the encounter with God, sort of constantly puts other people in my presence. To say that I'm embodied, I must first say that you are embodied. Yeah. Your body matters, so therefore I can say my body matters. And that's that correlation between the love of God that is the love of neighbor. These two things go together. It's not, oh, I love God, I'm good, and one day I'll get around to loving my neighbor. That's not the equation. <laughs> Jesus clearly says, using scripture to back this up, Jesus says, the, you know, the commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like unto it. <laughs> As if loving your neighbor is loving God, and loving God is loving your neighbor. And so you can't separate the two. To do so would be to destroy essentially both. They're so cleaved together. Um, and so uh, that becomes necessary. I'm building off a little bit too from uh, Marcus Bart's understanding of the social aspect of justification by faith. In that, I don't actually know I'm justified 
apart from the fact that I know you're justified. This gets us into that subject-object relationship work that we were talking about at the beginning. Right. You are justified, so I. we are justified, so I am justified, right? Yes. It's not just me and God. You can't just go off into the woods and have some sort of, you know, like you and God relationship where you don't have to ever be concerned with your neighbor. It's a communal affair. Um, it's an embodied communal affair. And so that embodiedness has so many different levels to it. But in that it's social, in that it's communal, dialectical theology demands that I give a damn about the people around me who are suffering because, to quote the um, musical Hamilton, um, no one's free unless everyone's free, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, you know, are we free? Not yet. <laughs> nope. Uh, we have a lot of work and, to do. <laughs> yes, a lot of work to do. And also, I think that dialectical theology, in an embodied sense, allows me not to be afraid of that embodied work. Um, I have a lot of work to do as a white cishet woman, um, especially if I want to be a good ally to um, all other human beings on this planet. Um, and in that God is in suffering, God is in challenge, God is in the world, God is, oh, I'm always at the point where you can, you can have an encounter with God anywhere. There is this understanding that in this encounter and brought into new life. And so even facing those really hard moments where you just can feel the weight of them, that you have to press through, that there's no way around but through the Red Sea, right? You have to go deep down through the parted wall, the water walls. Um, and it's, it's a death, um, but there's life on the other side. Um, and so you can face the challenges. You can hear the hard news. You can get up and try again. Um, I find it just really a resilient theology. Um, and one that makes and, and causes humans to be, uh, really human. Um, in their action, in their bodies, um, and uh, in the world. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, as I said earlier, I think we could probably spend like another 30 minutes at least talking about this. And I think as far as my list of little list of questions, I think we hit like, we just hit them all. Um, <laughs> orga organically, uh, we hit them all already. Um, and we mentioned uh, between the two of us, we mentioned uh, Our God Loves Justice. Um, you mentioned a couple of videos. Um, yeah. is, and, but is there anything else that you would recommend um, if people were looking to learn a little bit more beyond uh, this conversation? Um, I, I defer to those who taught me. Um, just because I'm still like, I'm just sort of getting my feet planted here in acad academia in regards to um, having a voice. Um, not that I need them to approve of me, but um, I'm not necessarily, con you know, like I'm not one that everyone goes to to like learn more about dialectical theology. Because I myself am still in the throes of learning it from the perspective of the guy that I'm studying, Friedrich Gogarten. And also, too, like, uh, Dr. McMagan and Dr. Congdon have gone ahead, right? And so I defer to them um, when it comes to learning more about it. Now, the goal is, 
if I understand things rightly. The goal is to have more material out there. Um, I am kind of entertaining the idea of, I'm sitting on a children's book <laughs> that I've had for years, and um, I've been entertaining. If I, if I get time, I want to make it into sort of a children's book that sort of weaves through it um, dialectical theology. That would be really cool. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, it's it's I don't know how to do it. I probably need some advice on it. But um, I know that the goal is to have more out there um, in regards to um, dialectical theology that's accessible. I know that's at the heart of some of the work of Society for Dialectical Theology. Um, but yeah. I think that the best is to point in the direction of the people who have sort of paved the way for the current resurgence of dialectical theology in our modern um, moment here in um, the late uh, teens into the early 20s. Once again, Maybe. early 20s. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> hundred years Something later. Something about those 20s. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but that makes total sense. Um, but if somebody wants to find you and uh, maybe listen to your sermons or read the sermons that you post or uh, find your podcast, uh, where should they find you? All right. Um, I put everything at laurenrelarkin.com. Um, now, while I'm not writing um, uh didactically about dialectical theology. If you read my sermons and you read the posts that I write, it is in there hard because I'm so influenced by it. So you can glean a lot about what does it look like for a dialectical theologian to be preaching and teaching. Um, so you can learn there, but everything is on that blog. Even Santa Coloquia is also on that blog and easy to find. If you just Googled Santa Coloquia or typed in laurenrelarkin.com, you would find everything and more than enough. Um, even my, my, my haikus, I've been in a haiku phase lately. <laughs> and I have a YouTube channel too now, but then oh, again, wow. that, yeah, I know I did Dostoevsky in dialectical theology recently. And I still <laughs> have to get to that one. <laughs> so um, um, but anyway, all on my blog. Yeah, um, and I can attest to the fact uh, that you will be able to find dialectical theology uh, in your sermons if you are looking for it. Um, yes. <laughs> well, this has been really great. I feel like um, I feel like you preach the gospel to me <laughs> um, as well. <laughs> I kind of always feel that way when I read uh, your sermons. Um, but this has been really great. Um, I really enjoy talking to you and I'm really uh, super grateful that you took some time to come out here and talk to me. Um, and maybe we can do it again sometime. I, well, I have to say thank you for one of the best compliments I've ever received. To be told that I just preach the gospel is the core of my existence. And thank you for thinking of me and having me in my um, in my uh, nascent state of this academic climb into dialectical theology to have me come on and talk about something that I do love and have huge regard for and just see as such a vital thing. I'm very honored. And yeah, I'd love to um, host you back 
over. <laughs> so we will be talking again for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us, a show where everyone is welcome to God Talk. Find us on the web at seminary.show, on Twitter at seminaryshow, and or send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Oh, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give us a rating. Thanks again and catch you next time.